Well, I'm uh, proud to be part of a church that is committed to loving our neighbors well, loving our neighborhood well. And um, I love what has happened really, truly, just strictly from a group of volunteers here at Soul City Church that uh, looked at our partnership with Brown Elementary and said, you know, maybe we can do a little bit more. Maybe we can do a little bit more to help and worked with their administration to get this reading program up off the ground. Um, and as you heard Scott mention there, uh, it doesn't take like a, a you know, background in education, doesn't take all that kind of stuff. If you have a heart for the city, if you have a heart for kids, um, it literally takes about an hour a week. And you can be a part of facilitating a future for a kid. And I think as we come around uh, this weekend into tomorrow, as we celebrate the life and legacy of Martin Luther King, or as my son, who's learning about him for the first time in kindergarten, calls him King Luther. Uh, <laughs> we'll work it out by third grade or so. But as we look at his life and legacy, the opportunity that you actually can have to be a part of providing an education, an opportunity for some kids who might otherwise be overlooked, who might otherwise get kind of lost in the shuffle of a system, you have a part to play. There's something that you can actually do uh, to make sure that they have an opportunity. So, uh, you know, it, uh, it was mentioned in the video, Scott said, you can fill out the card in front of you if you like, or go to our concierge. We would love to have all 50 and more volunteers on campus extending the love of God to the students and families of Brown Elementary throughout the week. So I would encourage you to do that. We're going to continue in our series, though, right now uh, called Operation Transformation, where we're looking at how we get beneath the surface of our resolutions. Last week, we talked about how important it is as you enter into a new year to really investigate what it is you truly believe to be true. And we said last week, we discovered from God's word last week that nothing, nothing determines how we behave or who we become more than what we believe. And so we said, instead of throwing, you know, resolutions at a dartboard, hoping that it'll make change, what if we actually could change from the inside out and starting with what we truly believe to be true about God and how that shapes and affects who we truly are. Well, this week, we're actually going to look at our stories and what our stories have to teach us about who God is, who we are, and who he's created us to become. In a minute, we're going to actually receive our offering, which is something we do here all the time at Soul City Church. A lot of us, most of us give online, but we do that in this room, in this time, because it serves as an act of worship and it serves as a spiritual discipline for us. It's one of the many ways that we say thanks to God and it's the way that we loosen our grip on our stuff so it doesn't have such a grip on our lives. And we look around our lives, realize we probably don't have all that we want, but we have more than we need. And we know and we acknowledge who that comes from. This is how we say thanks, one of the many ways. And so the volunteer is going to come forward to receive the offering here in a second. But as they do, as we're talking about story here tonight, what I want you to think about is your favorite childhood story. What was one of your favorite childhood stories that you love to read or have read to you? I'm not talking about a TV show or a cartoon that you're into. That's too easy. I'm talking about a book that had words and it was printed on paper and you actually had to read it or someone read it to you. What was your favorite childhood story? So I want you to turn to the person next to you, make sure you know their name and share with them your story, hear their story. As I do, we're also going to receive our offering at the same time. So go ahead, turn to each other. What was your favorite childhood story? All right, I'm not sure... Uh what your favorite book was. Hopefully that was a fun little walk uh, down the Reading Rainbow Lane. Uh, I'm not sure what your favorite book or story was growing up. Uh, I brought with me, actually, uh, books that I was basically raised on. This is part of my original collection of the Chronicles of Narnia that I started reading when I was seven years old, eight years old, began to read these. Anyone read through the Chronicles of Narnia? 
Yeah, and so this was, I read these a lot. There was like, I had a poster with a giant map of Narnia in my room, so I kind of geeked out on Narnia at an early age uh, and loved these stories, loved all, all of getting into these stories. And it's been fun uh, because we've actually been able to start reading them to our son, Elijah, and, uh, and he is really, really uh, loving those kind of stories. Jeannie actually just started reading a story that I'd never heard of before, but apparently, according to her, next to the Bible, this is the most important book in the world, and it's the boxcar kids or boxcar children? Children? Okay, so clearly I don't know, all right? Boxcar children, apparently it changed your life too. Okay, we all can form a reading small group afterwards and go through those and read that together because our kids are loving. I loved also, there's another book, and this probably shows how old I am. I don't even know if they're around anymore. There are books called Choose Your Own Adventure, which is like, I love those books. Like, they were the first, like, interactive book. Like you could have all kinds of different stories and you could read it five different times and such a great thing. And I think what, what is true when we, and we realize this as kids, although you may not be able to put words to it, is there is something hardwired into the human condition that we love great stories. And we, we are a people who are built on stories. The human race has a great oral tradition, a capacity and desire to tell and to hear great stories. We love great stories. And in, in what is true of every great story that we love, whether it's Chronicles of Narnia or Boxcar Children or, or, you know, Harry Potter, whatever you're into, right? What's true of every one of those stories is they are filled with fascinating characters. And in every one of those stories, if you were to think back to what you just shared a second ago, at some point there's probably some great conflict or some great loss or tragedy or some obstacle that had to be overcome. At some point in every great, great, great story, there is drama. There's great drama, and there's impossible odds that are against the main characters. There's lavish settings and scenery, and it allows your mind to engage and create and be a part of these wonderful landscapes and scenes and settings and scenarios. Like, there's nothing like a great story. But what I found so fascinating, at least about my own life, and maybe this is true of yours, is while all those things are true that I love about a great story, I've loved all those things since I was a kid, the things that we love to read in great stories so often aren't the things that we love to live about our own lives. We, we love to read about other people's great, you know, triumphs and overcoming obstacles and drama and conflict. We just don't personally want any of that. In fact, we go to great lengths to avoid it. We pray against it. God, please keep this from happening in my life. God, please keep this from happening to this relationship. God, please don't let this happen to my job. We work so hard and go to such great lengths to avoid so often what we love about great stories. In our own lives, there are an amazing cast of characters that have surrounded our lives, but so often we're too self-obsessed and self-absorbed to even notice the rich tapestry of characters that God has woven into our story. We're so consumed with what's right in front of us that many of us fail to read the backstory of our own lives. We love to read and to hear a great story, but so often we don't know how to live one. And so we find ourselves wondering what we're supposed to do with our lives, wondering what's next, wondering how we got here, when maybe, just maybe, the answer isn't more resolutions. It's you diving into and inviting God into your story. And what I've found to be true of my life and maybe true of yours as well is that if I'm ever going to understand 
the story that is to come or the story that I want to live, I have to understand the story that has brought me to this point. I have to look back at the story that has got me to this point. If I'm ever going to understand or have a handle on the story that God wants to write with me called my future. Because what I found in my own life is if I don't pay attention to those things, they tend to have a way of just repeating themselves. Just different characters, different settings, different scenes, different scenarios, but the same themes seem to keep coming back up in my life, my story. Has that happened to you at all? Where you keep finding yourself bumping up against the same walls, the same types of relationships. Why is that happening? Why do I keep finding these types of guys? Or why do I keep ending up in this kind of situation? Why does that keep happening? My hunch is is because we don't pay enough attention to or invite God into our own story. And when it comes to your story, what we're going to see here through a story we're going to read from God's word, and what we, I think we could see from our own lives if we were to be really honest here tonight, when it comes to our own story, it either gets redeemed by God or it's going to be repeated by you. Let me say that again because this is like one of those things I think is kind of worth writing down, right? Maybe the smartest thing I have to say tonight. When it comes to your story, when it comes to mine, when it comes to every single story that you see in the Bible, I would argue that when it comes to every story in human history, we either allow it to be redeemed by God or it's going to be repeated by us. And there's just no way around it. The themes are going to find their way of working themselves back into our lives. We're going to end up in the same rut again. We're going to end up in the same types of relationships again. We're going to end up not knowing what is next in our lives again unless our story is redeemed, is redeemed by God. Your story, and I mean all of your story, even the parts of your story that you don't like to talk about publicly, your story is either redeemed or it's repeated. And there's just simply no amount of resolutions to work your way around that. And so what we're going to look at tonight is a story where we get to see this played out. And here's the great thing. You feel how heavy the room is right now? We're going to read a story about someone else for the next few minutes. And they're way worse than you. All right? So just kind of let that help you for a minute, right? Let that kind of help ease your attention for a minute. But we're going to read a story from the Bible about someone who had themes in their life that continued to repeat from generation to generation and throughout their life until they had an intersection with God and God redeemed their story and made their story not only new, but true and a story worth living. So if you pull out your Bibles or if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible right in front of you or right beneath you where you're sitting. If you'd grab that, we're going to open to Genesis 25. Genesis 25, that's page 26 in the Blue Bible. So Genesis 25, we're going to read the life of, and I'd ask that everyone uh, open up and start with God's word. We believe this word is life. We talked about this last week, that this is what changes and renews, and part of what renews our mind is God's truth really forms and reshapes our assumptions. And so we're going to dive into God's word starting in uh, Genesis 25. Uh, You can actually start on page 24 with that. Sorry, page 24 in the Blue Bible. We're going to look at the story of two brothers, but we're going to focus specifically on one of them. His name is Jacob. Now, what's going to happen over the next 10 minutes or so is we're going to fly through about nine chapters of the Bible. You're going to get a week's worth of devotions or quiet times all done in about 10 minutes. 
right? You're going to be flying, but I'm not going to be able to stop and say, turn to page 42. I'm not going to be able to do that. So I'm going to ask you to keep up with the story that we're going to read about this character named Jacob, whose themes kept repeating until God redeemed his story. Now, Jacob is the grandson of someone named Abraham. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Abraham is one of those like top shelf characters, very important character. God poured a promise into Abraham's life. At a very old age, Abraham and his wife Sarah had no children. And God said to Abraham, not only am I going to give you children, I'm going to give you a nation. I am going to bless you so richly that your life and the people, your descendants, will bless the world. You're not only going to have a kid, you're going to have a nation. To which Abraham thought like, how do we fit all those kids in the minivan, right? How does that, what does that look like? And he didn't have any idea. In fact, he wouldn't fully see what that looked like in his life. Abraham had a son named Isaac. And if you know stories from the Old Testament, there was a moment where Abraham and Isaac, Isaac was laid on an altar and Abraham was ready to offer his son up, his son's life up to God. And God spared him. And it's a very powerful story that marked the life of Abraham and the life of of Isaac. Well, that same Isaac was getting along in years and hadn't had any children. And he and his wife, most specifically his wife, became pregnant with twins, all right, with twins. And so now he's not only going to have a child, but he's going to have a nation or or, uh, twins. We'll get to the nation part. Uh, In fact, if you look at Genesis 25, 23, you can see what God says to Rebecca, which is Isaac's wife. Look at what he says to her. He says these words, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And not just twins, but what God is saying to her is something much deeper. Two nations are in your womb. And for any women in this room who've ever been pregnant before, it feels that way. Like there are two nations inside of you. Now, I personally have not ever been pregnant, (laughs) but my wife has been twice, and she reminded me every day that it felt like two nations were inside of her. So that's what God says. No, two nations, not just twins, are inside your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. Now, this little word there, the older will serve the younger. God is saying something to Rebecca about the dynamic of her two sons that are about to be born to her. In that culture, in that custom, All of the authority and the rights and every sort of blessing went to the older, the eldest, the firstborn. The firstborn was entitled to everything that the family had to offer. They carried the family name. But what God is saying is, no, 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 a different story is about to be written here. The older will actually serve the younger, which she couldn't possibly fully ever understand until several years later. Two sons were born to her, Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first. Esau's name literally translates to hairy, like hairy beast, like teen wolf baby. Like he was born, and the Bible says he was covered in red hair, right? So that, he was a hairy baby. So this is how creative they were. They didn't have all these books of like creative names, right, back in Bible days. They looked at him and said, wow, he's really hairy. We'll call him Harry. And so that's how he got his name. He comes out first. Coming right out after him is the second, Jacob, holding onto his brother's ankle. He comes out of the womb, and they name him Jacob, whose name literally means surplanter, or the one who takes the place of, or the one who grabs the ankle of. So again, very literal people, right? 
But there's something very powerful about that name, Surplanter, the one who takes the place of, at birth, part of his story was already being written. The Bible says, if you jump to Genesis 25, verse 27, that the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. We're just going to pause here right now and insert a little bit of our own commentary. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, wore flannel shirts, and if he drove a car, it would have been a truck. Jacob wore tailored shirts and drove a Mini Cooper, right? There was a very different scenario between these two. One was born for the open country, Esau. Jacob stayed close to home. And the text says that Isaac, their father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau because he was a hunter and a man of the open country. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So already early on, there are some family favorites at work. You experience those in your own family? Right, you ever seen that play out? There's one who dad favored, one who mom favored, and it would come to a head not long after our story begins. A lot of events happen, but early on in their lives, Jacob deceives and tricks his brother Esau and actually steals his birthright from him. So that thing that only belonged to firstborns, Jacob is able to trick him and, give and get from him his birthright early on. But that's not the end of the story. What happens later on is uh, Rebecca begins to realize that Isaac is dying. Her husband is dying. And he's about to pass on the blessing that was passed on to him from his father Abraham that was given to him by God. And it's a very tangible blessing. The text explains that everywhere that Isaac went, he prospered. Everywhere he planted crops, they quadrupled. Everywhere he had livestock, they grew. They were the choicest livestock. So everywhere he went, there was a tangible blessing of God that surrounded him. So this blessing was very important, and it was rightfully whose? Esau's. But Rebecca hears about this, and her favorite son is who? Jacob. And so she goes to Jacob and says, look, your dad's about to give Esau the blessing. I've got a plan. And she dresses her son up in her, his brother's clothes. And because he was so hairy, hence his name, Harry, they actually put animal skins over his arms just in case Isaac were to touch him so that he would think that it was Esau. And she said, you go in there and you steal the blessing from your father. It's a true, total stage mom move, right? And as crazy as the plan sounds, it works. It works. Jacob steals not only the birthright from his brother, he steals the blessing from God that had been given to Isaac to give to Esau. Genesis 27, 30 says this. Right after it happened, after Isaac finished blessing him, Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence. You gotta love the Bible adding some drama to the story. Jacob had literally just snuck out the back of the tent and Esau came in from hunting. He realized what had happened, that his brother had once again surplanted him, had once again taken his place and it tricked him out of the blessing of God. And it says that he wept bitterly, and he was so wounded and angry. Jump down to Genesis 27, 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. 
then I will kill my brother Jacob. So he's pretty clear about what his intentions are. His to-do list, mourn my father's death, kill my brother. That's pretty much all he had on his mind. And obviously Jacob knew this. And so Jacob's mother said, you got to get out of town. You got to go quick. I have a brother who lives in a far off land. You can go to my brother Laban, hide out there till things cool off here with your brother. I'm sure this will all pass. And so she goes, you go escape to Laban's house and he'll take care of you. You'll be fine. And so as Jacob is running for his life from Esau, as we can see, he has already deceived him from the very beginning, grabbing his ankle at birth, tricking him out of his birthright, stealing from him the blessing of God. He is running for his life from his brother. And on his way there, he's exhausted. He lays down and has a dream. And I just want to pause at Genesis 28, 12. Jump up to Genesis 28, 12, because I want to pause at this beautiful picture when you think God would say, okay, enough, Jacob. Like, here's 10 plagues for you. Like, look at what you've done. You can't steal a blessing from me. That's not how it works. Actually, what God says is very interesting in Genesis 28, 12. In the midst of a broken story, God says these words to Jacob. Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with his top reaching to the heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Now, wait a second, God. This is the guy who stole the blessing. Actually, he goes to Esau. You need to, you need to look in that, get that sort of straightened out. Now, God says, no, I'm actually going to bless you, Jacob. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will be spread out to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And the reason we pause there is because so oftentimes in the midst of our own stories, in the midst of so often in the midst of the broken seasons and chapters of our life, we are quick to forget a promise that God never forgets. We are quick to forget that God's presence hasn't left us and isn't bound by our circumstances and our choices. That when God makes a promise, and when God says he'll be with you, he is with you even when you are running from him. In the midst of Jacob running for his life, God says, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. Your story's not over. This is not the end. It's just the end of Act 1. And so Jacob gets to his uncle Laban's land. And we're going to kind of move through this stuff because there's a lot of amazing, rich, rich stuff going on in the text. Genesis 29 says when he gets there, he immediately sees a woman named Rachel. And he's so captivated by her. He's so instantly in love with her that he has to declare his intentions for her after knowing her for only five minutes. And so it says in Genesis 29, 11, that Jacob just walked up and kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Gentlemen, take note. (laughs) 
This is a good move. Just, oh, that was the greatest kiss ever, right? He just weeps aloud at one kiss from Rachel. And what the Bible doesn't go into great detail is it was Rachel's technically his cousin, but we'll just keep moving. It makes you weep for a whole other reason, but we'll just keep moving on because that's the Bible and things were different in those days. And so the Bible tells us in Genesis 29, 16, now he is so infatuated and so in love, deeply in love with this woman, Rachel, that he goes to his uncle and says, I am, I am in love with this woman. So now Genesis 29, 16, Laban had two daughters, actually. The name of the older, look, here it is again, older and younger. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. <laughs> the Bible is really kind here. It says that Leah had weak eyes, which while we don't know exactly what that translates to, the best we can discern is that she had a great personality, <laughs> right? She had a great personality and really just a wonderful girl. And so she had weak eyes, which is, well, that's why I love the Bible. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful, and, and Jacob was in love with Rachel and said to Laban, his uncle, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. I'll work for you for seven years in return for your daughter, Rachel. Some of you were on eHarmony for 30 days, and that was too long, right? Not enough results. He says, I'll go seven years for this love, because I can tell she's worth it. And this is just a beautiful verse, Genesis 29, 30. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now, a very interesting thing happens in the honeymoon suite. On the night of their wedding, at the last second, Laban sends Leah in to the honeymoon suite, not Rachel. Seven years, Jacob has worked and toiled and sweat. One singular focus, Rachel. And at the last second, Laban sends in Leah. And you can imagine Jacob's surprise when he woke up the next morning. And he went to Laban and said, this is, what have you done? I, you were supposed to give me Rachel. Rachel was to be my wife. And Laban says, oh, no, 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 no. See, we have a custom in our land. The firstborn, the eldest, is who the father gives away. That's how it actually works. You don't steal the youngest. You're given the oldest. And so I was just kind of taking care of that detail for you. And so Jacob says, all right, all right. Well, Leah's now my wife. I'll work another seven years for Rachel. Fourteen years he worked to be married to Rachel. And eventually they were married. And through an amazing, amazing set of deception and lies and lacking God's goodness, Leah and Rachel began to work out plans to see who will have Jacob's children. And they get so bad that eventually what ends up happening is that Leah has six sons by Jacob. Leah's personal assistant has two. Rachel's personal assistant has two by Jacob. And Rachel has uh, two as well. So we have six for Leah, two for her assistant, two to Rachel's assistant, two to Rachel. He has 12 sons from four different women. This is a very complex family structure. This is big love, right? This is very complex. 
And if you were to go through, and we just simply don't have time tonight to read through the text, just about every one of those sons was born through an act of deception or a lack of trust in God. But the story of those 12 sons actually aren't over either. Well, eventually, in time, Jacob falls out of favor with Laban, and he fears for his life that Laban's going to turn on him, and so he decides to leave town. And so he packs up all his wives and all his kids and all their things, and they begin to run. And here he is again in Act 2, running for his life. Does this sound like a theme repeating? All these years later, after having a dream where God says, I'm not going to forget you. I am going to bless you. I am going to cause the world to be blessed by you. Here he is running for his life in a family born out of deception and a lack of trust. He is running and running. As he is running from his uncle Laban, he knows that eventually he's going to come into contact with his brother Esau. And they have a couple decade old feud between them. He knows that his brother in his bare hands could kill him in an instant. So he sends some scouts ahead to see just what the situation and status is with Esau. Jump ahead in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, 6. They come back and they return to Jacob and they say, we want, uh, we went to your brother and now he's coming to meet you, just so you know, he's coming to meet you. And by the way, 400 men are with him. And it's, it's not a flash mob, right? Like, don't, like, this is, there. here they come. And so with Laban to his back and Esau ahead of him, Jacob is now in a situation where he thinks this may be the end of his story. And so he divides his, his family up and he sends ahead lots of gifts to Esau to kind of calm his nerves. And he sends his family on ahead and he's left alone by himself. And it's in that space, that night that he spent alone, that his story caught up to him. All the deception, all the surplanting, all the taking the place of, all the lies and deception that had been repeated and played out in his own life, in his own family, caught up to him. And then there's a very interesting account in Genesis 32, starting in verse 24. It says that Jacob was now left alone. And this is so often where God finds us, left alone by himself. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, a lot of study has been put into this, and what most biblical scholars believe that this is a form of God, some even believe this to be a form of Jesus wrestling with Jacob. And from everything we understand from the text, it's literally wrestling, like WWF wrestling like grappling, wrestling with each other out of nowhere. He's worried about Laban coming after him. He's got Esau who's going to kill him. And now an angel basically appears and starts wrestling him. I mean, can you imagine Jacob at this point in his story? So he's wrestling with this man. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled the man. So he just pulls an illegal move and touches his hip And he's wrenched and immediately is in great pain, but he does not give up. Here he is at what he believes to be the end of his story, wrestling for his very life. Then the man says to him in Genesis 32, 26, let me go for it's daybreak. My time here is done. Let me go. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you what? Bless me. Here it is again. 
I will not let you go unless you bless me. You bless me. You bless me. Very bold move to make when you're wrestling an angel. The man asked him, and this is very important. He looks at him in this moment and says, what's your name? Now he knows full well what his name is, and that's not the question he's really asking. In this moment, after a night of wrestling with him, after all the totality of Jacob's life and story had caught up to him, this man looks at him and says, tell me your story. You tell me your story. What brought you here? What got you here? Who are you? This is the story that God is asking each one of us tonight. Who are you? So often we fail to read the backstory of our own lives, to pay attention to the characters, the conflict, the drama, the pain, the loss, the joy, the sorrow. And this man asked Jacob, who are you? Tell me your name. Tell me your story. And we see Jacob answers, I'm, I'm Jacob. I'm the surplanter. I'm the one who deceives. I'm the one who takes. I'm the one who lies. That is who I am. And the man says to him in Genesis 32, 28, no. No. That's not the end of your story. You will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Your name will be Israel which literally means one who struggles with God. Your name will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with human beings and have overcome. You have overcome. This is a very powerful point of redemption in the story of the life of Jacob. All of his story had caught up to him in that moment. And as he's literally wrestling with God, God says, you tell me your story. I'm the deceiver. I'm the one who's done this. I'm the one who's done that. God says, no, 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 that's not the end of your story. You are one who has wrestled with me even when you did not recognize me, even when you were running from me. You have wrestled with me and you have overcome. And I have a new story to write with your life. I have a new story to write with your life. And what's fascinating is if you look at Genesis 32, 31, it says the sun rose up as he passed through Peniel, which Jacob named that place to literally mean the face of God. This place where he wrestled, this man, he just called the place the face of God. Again, not very creative people. But as he walked through that place, he was limping because of his hip. And every indication we have says that he spent the rest of his life limping, that there was still a reminder given to him of where he came from, but that God would never fail to be with him. There would be wounds, but they would not be open wounds. There there would be scars, but they could be healed. There would be a limp, but he could still walk, and he could still move into the future and the story that God was writing with him and writing for him. We have a moment here where Jacob has to face his own story and his own life. And then quite literally right after that, he wakes up for, or gets uh, done with wrestling an angel and is like, what is going on? What has happened? And then he remembers, oh, wait a second. My hairy brother's coming to kill me. 
Genesis 33, 4 says that Esau is now running towards him. And you can just imagine Jacob going, what can happen next? And he had no idea what was about to happen next. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, embraced him, and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And this relationship that had been on repeat of broken, 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 deception, lies, stealing, now was beginning to be redeemed, restored, renewed. They hugged, they kissed, they wept. And Jacob says to his brother Esau, after years of running from him, Genesis 33:10, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. To look into the eyes of redemption, to know that this is not the end of my story, to know that there is a new chapter, that I have a new name, that I'm not bound or confined to all of that, but that God actually uses all of that to usher me into the next chapter of my life. It's like looking into the face of God. And what we see through the life of Jacob, I believe, is what we see played out in every one of our own lives. When it comes to his story and when it comes to yours, it's either going to be redeemed or it's going to be repeated. It's either going to be redeemed by God or it's going to be repeated by you. There's just no way around it. You can add all the resolutions you want. But the fact of the matter remains that for many of us, if not all of us, there are whole chapters of your life that you have literally closed the book to and tried to move on from. There are whole parts of your story that you're unwilling to explore yourself, to invite God into. So you closed that chapter, you closed that book and said, you know what, I'm just going to sort of do the best I can to figure it out on my own, and I'm going to move ahead. That's why we do resolutions. They're not bad things, but they're hopes that we can change our life and our story by our own efforts. But the longer and longer and longer those chapters stay closed, guess what happens? The more and more and more those themes, those patterns are going to repeat in your life. You just can't escape it. Jacob couldn't. Why would you think that you could? And so to move on through life thinking that you could ignore whole sections and chapters of your life is to find yourself living a life on repeat. But what God wants to do is come in and redeem. What we want to delete, God is here to complete, to redeem, to make new. For some of us, there are chapters of divorce in our life the divorce of your parents, a divorce that you have gone through, that you may be going through right now. And you just, if I just, I just need to kind of shut that chapter and move on. It was too hard, too painful. And besides, what good does it do digging in the dirt? What happened, happened. Well, guess what's going to happen? Same patterns. The same themes are going to continue to repeat in your life. Some of us have chapters in our lives and our stories of emotional absence from our parents where maybe your parents stayed together but they weren't really there you know they held it together but they weren't present with you in your life and you say well that's you know they they did the best they could 
That's that chapter. We'll kind of move on from that. Guess what? Guess what? Guess what happens? Those themes that were planted into your life and written to your story at a very young age will continue to play themselves out louder and louder and stronger and stronger throughout the rest of your life unless that chapter is redeemed by God. For many of us, sadly many of us in this room, there are chapters of abuse, emotional abuse, Verbal, mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And it is so hard and so painful to even think about how that entered into your story that you thought the best strategy would just be to close the book and to move on. There are some in this room watching who have a chapter called abortion. And there is a book, a chapter of your story that it's just too hard and too painful for you to have to open on your own. And so you've done the best you can to make it on your own. But that pain, that loss is only going to reverberate unless, unless God is brought in to redeem. We can try as best we can to keep running from our story, but we can never outrun it. Our only hope, our only hope is to invite God in to redeem to make right, to renew our story, to find us at the end of our rope and say, I am here and I have always been here. And like I promised Jacob, I am not done with you. Your story is not over, but it will never be complete until you open up those chapters and invite me in. And so what redemption looks like for our stories in our life If you're thinking about in your life that there are chapters, like every one of us, in my own life too, chapters where redemption is needed and necessary. A couple thoughts. You might want to jot these down. We're going to do this and experience throughout the homework that we have all throughout this week through our Operation Transformation Challenge, but this is for you to begin to do tonight. A couple thoughts where redemption can begin. First, one of the most important things you can do is to write out your whole story. It's to literally write out your whole story story, and to look at it, all of it in front of you, as best you can, as many details as you can muster up, to actually ask God to invite, to illuminate, to write out your story. And it's going to take like several pieces of paper. And it's going to take at least like an hour or two. Okay, it's not something like you do on your iPhone on the train and the ride into work. This is you saying to God, if you're going to, if it's possible, God, that you can redeem Jacob's story, you can redeem my story, then you need to write out your story and say, okay, God, here it is. Here are the tough parts. Here are the joyful parts. Here are the parts I don't understand. And then what you do is you invite God in to reveal, God, help me understand. Help me make sense. Where were you in this moment? And I spent several years with a spiritual mentor going back through some key moments in my life saying, okay, I need to know where God was at in this moment. I need to literally see him in this scene so that I can understand and experience his love for me because if I don't, I'm going to continue to repeat those patterns in my life. So we ask God to reveal what we haven't maybe ever paid attention to in our own story. And I guarantee you when you invite God into this process, you're going to look at your life and go, oh my gosh, I never saw that before. How come I didn't notice that? No wonder I continue to end up in these kinds of relationships. No wonder I continue to hit my head up against the same sin week in, week out. This is where it started. So you invite God in to reveal. You invite God in to forgive because there are places in your story that you need to take ownership. 
That you need to say, God, this was a moment where I was like Jacob running from you. Like Jacob, I deceived and took from you. Like Jacob, I took my story into my own hands. And there are places that you're going to need to say, God, can you come in and heal? Because the pain's too great and the wound's too deep for me to try to make it on my own anymore. You invite God in. You ask God what you need to own and what you need to learn. And then this is the most important part, is that you seriously get help from others. This is what I've learned in my life. It's taken a couple different great, wonderful therapists, Christian counselors, a fantastic spiritual mentor, and an absolutely amazing godly wife, a couple close friends, and probably some more people I can't even think of in the moment. It takes a village for me to understand my story. But it only takes one God to redeem it. And he can do it. If you invite him in. If you invite him in. And this has been part of the hard work that I've done the best I can to commit myself to. That there are patterns in my life that I currently meet with my counselor. And I say, okay, why do I keep doing this? And what she does is walk me back through. And we're going back and back to understand where this chapter started for me and why it's on repeat mode in my life. Now what I'm finding is when I invite God into those places and I begin to open myself up, ask for his healing, ask for his forgiveness, ask for him to reveal to me, the story begins to change. The story begins to change and my life becomes that much more of an open book. And I become that much more available to you, to Jeannie, to God. But I don't have to hide these chapters in the back of the book, never look at them, never share them with anyone else. They actually become a part of my story that I'm proud to share because they reveal a redeeming God. And here's the beautiful thing. When your story is redeemed, when your story is redeemed, guess what happens? God's glory is revealed. It's a beautiful thing that you can't do in yourself and you can't control by yourself. But when your story begins to be redeemed, when you open up those chapters, when you let God in and invite him in, your story begins to be redeemed and the glory of God begins to be revealed through your life and your story becomes a way to point glory to God. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing that only God could orchestrate and that only you can begin to initiate. Will you invite God in to the whole of your story? Will you allow God's glory to be revealed through a story that is being redeemed? It takes work, it takes time, but it's possible. This isn't the end of your story. This isn't the end. God is not done with you. And so I'm going to invite the band to come up right now. We're going to take a few minutes just reflecting on that reality that reality of what could make for a great story. Someone who allowed God into their life to redeem, to reveal, to open up the parts of our lives that we had closed off from God, from others, from ourselves. We're going to come to God through worship. We're going to seek God. We're going to hear truth from Him and declare and pour out our hearts to Him. But before we do, I'd ask you, would you join me in a moment of prayer? And I'd ask if you would... Just bow your head and close your eyes for one specific reason. 
Because I want you to think about, as best you can, what the names of those chapters would be. What are the names of the chapters that you've maybe kept hidden, locked up, closed the book on? Like Jacob, you've run from. What might it look like tonight for you to invite God in, for you to open the book back up? Say, God, I want my story to be whole and complete. A story not of perfection. God knows none of us can do that. But a story of transformation. A story that points to a God who can and will redeem, heal, forgive, make right, make new. God, I ask that for every one of us gathered here tonight that you would give us the courage to walk back into our stories to the places that are painful and difficult that we would actually go looking for you in those chapters and that we would not only find you but that we would find redemption, restoration, transformation. God, only you can do that in our lives, but you invite us to be a participant. You invite us to be a part. You invite us to be a part of taking the beautiful and broken parts of our lives and allowing you to work wonder and miracle in and through our stories. God, would you do that? Would you make something beautiful of our lives and our stories here tonight? We pray in your name, your power. Amen.